Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi everyone and welcome. My name is John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and critic and today I'm going to be talking to Rob Young, who has written a wonderful new book called The Magic Box, which is all about the wonders of television and film from the 60s and 70s and early 80s. It's a fantastic read, and there's a heck of a lot to discover. If you wish to follow me, you can do on Twitter at DrJonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. Like and subscribe and spread the word as far and wide as you possibly can. Uh, about the podcast. Uh, But before you do any of that, enjoy the conversation. Yeah, I moved here in 2012. So yeah, it's it's kind of, uh, yeah, it's become a permanent move. I can't, can't really see myself going back to live in Britain, really, in the foreseeable future. What about you? Are you, are you living in, in, in Italy? I'm living in Italy, yeah. I've been here since 99. I was, wow. here, I, yeah. I, was, okay. I was here for a lot of, I was here for a bit of 98 as well, but 99 was when I, we, we sort of, well, did what I imagine you did and sort of decided this, this is probably where we're going to settle. So, yeah, so it's been a long time. Yeah. It's that, it's that, the, a, a length of time that makes you think you're not sure which football team you're going to support in the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
yeah you sort of zoom out so you see you sort of <laughs> maybe it becomes yeah. less about the the local where you know where, where you are or where you've come from and um absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. can i just ask if it's not a rude question how hmm. old are you from because from reading your book i was thinking <laughs> god you're you're you must be like i don't know five or six years older than me but you don't look five or six years older than me. <laughs> well thanks <laughs> well i was born in 68 so ah, right. that makes right. me 50 I'm at the age where you, you stop remembering exactly the how old you are, but I, I think that's 53. I keep so, doing yeah. that. Yeah. I keep thinking, I keep doing this thing where I get to my birthday and people say, how old are you? And I realize I, I'm now the age that I've been saying I've been all year. Yeah. You know, I've been saying I'm yeah. 49 and then I get to my birthday and I think, oh no, now I am 49. I just yeah. assumed I was, you know, so I'm now 50. Okay. But, but I'm actually 49. <laughs> the next birthday will, yeah, I will be. Yeah, yeah, you've got your sort of a jump ahead. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, look, congratulations on the book. Thank you. It was so in my wheelhouse reading this. So much that was familiar. And, and well, I would say sort of half and half. Half of it was really familiar and I really got and I understood. Half of it was stuff that most of which I think I'd heard about and, and you know, were really famous in a sort of you come across those names like I don't know the stone tapes I've never seen for instance mm. and that but also like what a wonderful sort of list you've given me of films to now go and find is, is a lot of this stuff still available yeah I mean I what I really didn't want was to end up with a book which is frustrating because you're reading about all this stuff and you just you just can't get hold of it you know to, to see so it's a combination of of things that are i think nearly everything mentioned in the book you can get to see quite a lot of it's been reissued officially you know especially the bfi have done an amazing job in the last 10 to 15 years putting out a lot of really interesting but formerly quite obscure material both film and television um stuff uh but i mean youtube has obviously been the kind of savior for <laughs> For the researcher in many ways, there's an extraordinary amount of retrospective stuff posted up there, whether it's, I don't know, you know, where half of it comes from, you know, some of it clearly from people's private VHS tape collection, you know, but you can get to see a lot of stuff on there. And of course, there are slightly less official channels as well, you can go down, but I mean, I didn't do very much of that. I actually found that most of what I wanted to, to see was actually viewable in, in a pretty kind of open public way which is incredible really which which is in a way what makes doing a book like this possible now in a sense especially if you don't live you know as I don't now you know within kind of proximity of uh, the BFI archive or the B, you know an archive you can go and see stuff screened I, I did have a couple of private screenings at the BFI to, to, to look at some very difficult to track down stuff um, which you know I was very grateful for but it is it is an age now where it's it's kind of easier to write a kind of book like this because you know you just do have better access to to a lot of previously forgotten material. Yeah, absolutely. The sort of the archaeology you can get, you can you can do via the internet rather than in in sort of a Morgan Freeman in seven style library investigation. Yeah. yeah. What um what because you've written in the past on on music primarily is my understanding. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, no, that's that's quite right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what what led you towards film writing? What led you to well, I mean, actually, I should say for the listeners that it's it's uh, the magic box is really and again, correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> it's really like a, a look at the TV, the films to some degree the music and and the books of of that period you know you, you mentioned quite a few authors as well who uh 
who pop up. So what led you in, in that direction? What I suppose it came gradually. I mean, I, yeah, I started out my sort of, you know, career as, as a writer writing on music. I worked for The Wire magazine for, for many years. You know, I was always very interested in, uh, you know, music that wasn't mainstream, experimental music, but re really sort of across the board in terms of style and, and genre. And, you know, I mean, I guess at the same time, really, as I discovered music as a teenager, you know, I was also discovering film, you know, art film, you know, as 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 I write about in the book, I was just sort of growing up at a time which was particularly rich for interesting content on the television and in the cinemas. And so I kind of, you know, in a way, I mean, it's just the idea of being interested in culture and the arts generally to me is just really, it's just sort of common sense in a way. I don't really make divisions. And, you know, I, I guess as a writer, I'm sort of always interested in looking at connections and threads between things. And that can be just purely on a musical level. If you're, you know, the, the, the book I did 10 years ago, which in a way was the sort of seed for, for the magic box, was a book called Electric Eden, which was a kind of an attempt to understand what folk, uh, the idea of folk has meant for the British um, and, you know, kind of, you know, it started out what I wanted to write a history of mainly kind of folk rock from the 60s and 70s, which just happened to be a music that I love very much. Mm. But it turned out to be, you know, well, you, you start going down that road and you sort of say, well, actually, you know, when do people start talking about folk? Where, where does the idea of folk come from? You know, it actually came from the mid 19th century, part of a kind of folk revival. It's bound up with a sense of wanting to preserve things that are being lost in the industrial revolution and you know you so you kind of and then that gives you a sort of seed of an idea that you then see percolating through a history of music you know right up to the present day and and it just seemed natural to me writing that book to drop in references to some literature you know romantic literature for example um, and certain films uh, that seem to evoke uh, you know a sense of the past that seems to be very interested in looking for ways to evoke the past and, and a kind of you know I was also it comes down to things like looking at the sort of feel of album covers from the sort of folk rock era of the late right. 60s and thinking well you know a lot of the films of that time have the same kind of color palette and the same kind of grain and the same way of showing landscape in, and you know in a very sort of very sort of British sense of of the landscape and I, I suppose it sort of just slid sideways from that into thinking about wanting to kind of evoke the texture of film and television from a certain period and then you know maybe that was the seed of it in a sense you know but I was I think I re refer in that earlier book to programs like Pender's Fen the play for today from 1974 um you know so I think I I, I mentioned uh, Tony Richardson's Charge of the Light Brigade because I was really fascinated in the, 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 the to find out that for that the cinematographer David Watkins sort out these kind of Victorian lenses to sort of put on the front of his cameras. He, he literally wanted to see that film, that historical um, uh, recreation sort of th literally through Victorian glass. You know, that, it seems to me a really sort of fascinating idea of this, this kind of antiquarian eye um, you know, that seems to be very much a part of sort of British kind of cultural thinking in a sense. So it's these sort of details, I think, that sort of made me want to look further at you know, the kind of this sort of continuum of film and, and television uh, in Britain and, and how, how it's been concerned with representing the past, how it's to do with the kind of different sort of cultural memories. And 
it's it sort of evolved you know i mean i mean the, the the book you know ended up in a different shape from the one i i planned as as books often seem to do you know? mm. <laughs> bits expand here and there that you don't expect and then certain bits contract and it kind of finds its own form in a sense but um what was the most surprising direction you took or well, that the book took I suppose it, originally I, I probably the bulk of it was more uh, thinking I guess the sort of central part was what uh, what a lot of people are to, you know could, would refer to as folk horror you know and that and, and everything that kind of spins spins out of that and to a certain extent kind of British strange science fiction from the 50s and 60s and and I guess what happened was I became, I mean, I also wanted to touch on the kind of historical representation and costume drama and so on, but that that kind of became a bigger part of the book. And there are, it's divided up into big sections, this book. But I became interested in looking at, you could say the slightly more kind of muddy, gritty side of, of, of period drama, um, things that show rebellions, um, kind of, uh, you know, uh, underground movements and alternative histories and and things that kind of show kind of big splits in society in a sense, the sort of, um, you know, the, the divides and, and inequalities that exist. And at the same time, that moved into also, there's a chapter on kind of geographical programs and films, you could say, things that have actually tried consciously to explore the sort of geography of Britain but as as you're doing that you also get a kind of psychogeography or a you know kind of as I mean the obvious example is the programs and films of Sir John Betjeman you know who kind of did these travel logs mainly on the railways in the 1960s and you know they're these incredible sort of you know he's sort of He's kind of nostalgic for a Britain that's disappearing, you know, but he's also, I mean, is there, he's, you know, he's also kind of musing on, he's showing you historical details and telling you what things were like, you know, before bombs hit hit them. And, you know, it's a sort of, it's an, it's, it's a sort of very, very evocative, slightly sort of melancholic tone to those programmes. And sort of spinning out from there, there are other kind of tele, televisual guides to the landscape that I found really interesting so and that that kind of went forward into more recent filmmakers like Patrick Keeler and, and Chris Pettit and so on you know who also explore the sort of hidden patterns in landscape and the effect of capitalism on the way the country looks so you know again it was sort of like all you just sort of follow the threads you know and, and see where they take you that's the amazing thing about about doing a book like this is you know you you sort of get taken on on trips and down down strange lanes and and <laughs> Uh, you know you kind of just follow and yeah you know and also of course as you go you know people are always recommending you stuff as well that you've never heard of so you sort of like just you kind of uh, it's like you're walking down a lane and you get all these sort of brambles and sticky buds attaching to you <laughs> <laughs> I love the way you're mentioning all this sort of like very English uh, British sort of countryside stuff because when I was reading your book I was thinking oh this is just so evocative of like Bracken you know something like bracken i kept thinking of and uh, uh and you know um cow's parsley and what john le carré called skies dark with waiting rain right <laughs> yeah yeah do you think you would have written this book if you hadn't been living away from england no i definitely would have done it i mean i actually started it before i moved away so uh, no it was definitely something that i wanted to do possible that it's um in some ways the job is easier when you're not in in the middle of it um mm. you know you kind of get a just thinking of james joyce james joyce yeah. writing about <laughs> dublin well he sits in trieste well, very flattering know. comparison john but, uh... <laughs> But, I'm uh, talking about Dublin as James yeah, Joyce yeah, and yeah. portrait of artist. I'm sure. not talking about Finnegan's yeah, yeah, Wake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just 
yeah. a sales no, a sales know. plummet. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, it's it it definitely helps give give a a perspective and a and a more sort of bird's eye view of things in a way. And um, but I don't, I'm not sure it would have been a vastly different book if if I'd mm. still been been living in Britain. But uh, um, it's possible that not you know. I mean, especially in the last couple of years, I haven't really, I haven't been back. So I, I, I you know, I do really miss the, the countryside and, and, you know, the whole sort of, you know, a lot of the things about, about the landscape of Britain, I haven't seen with my own eyes for a long time. And um, mm. definitely like watching a lot of this stuff does, does help you, you know, reconnect with the atmosphere of, of your homeland. Um, where, where are uh, you, uh, where, where did you grow up? Because, you know, I, it, this is such a regionally specific book as well. It made me wonder, you know, where, where were you walking when you were a kid? No, I grew up in Bristol. Right, okay. Um, and, you know, that's sort of maybe significant because it is, you know, it's a quite a green city and, and still is. And I grew up, I was very lucky to grow up right next to a big, a big kind of open parkland space called Durdham Downs. And so, you know, there was a lot of tree climbing and running around, you know, as a, as a kid, being outside a lot, you know, I mean, as well as watching tons of TV. <laughs> so, you know, it was sort of combined everything. So, yeah, there was definitely parts of my childhood life that, you know, were like a sort of public information film, you know, sort of r- running around doing dangerous things with sticks in the forest. But yeah, you know, Bristol's interesting because, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of, it's one of those cities, a lot of layers of history quite visible on the streets and you know you're not too far from you know pretty deep English countryside there either you know and there's a lot of drives out to Somerset and holidays in Devon and Cornwall and you know so it's um I mean the southwest of England is very deep in my veins for sure mm. so yeah it's de- definitely a factor I don't know you know if I'd grown up in in the middle of London you know might it, it, I might not have quite had the sort of sensibility maybe about it but I mean it's, it's really it's really hard to say but it's, you know definitely a, a lot of a lot of you know greenery uh and is, is sort of somehow yeah in, ingrained in my memories of childhood in a sense yeah are you not far from Wales in, in no Scotland? that's right yeah no, no yeah, yeah I mean we used to go quite a lot over to Wales and you know you could actually pick up Welsh TV channels from from where we lived as well <laughs> so you, you could sort of watch the Welsh version of Channel 4 you know which is this weird sort of parallel universe but I remember Paul Whitehouse was talking about that in terms of his you know he used to do that old man who would be sitting sort of bumbling and you could only understand every 12th word and he said he got the idea from listening to Welsh radio so that he would hear right. some, somebody speaking a foreign language and then saying Tony Blair yeah Tony Blair yeah um so yeah one of uh, again i mean i i really love this because this is it's felt like you were reading my head you know the 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 all the nostalgic bits that you're inside you're watching the television you describe the television very physically so you also and, and going to the cinema you describe specific moments when you're going to see films and even a specific moment when you're like an extra in hearts of fire the bob dylan rupert everett star i saw rupert everett last week actually oh, in the fle- yeah. in the flesh yeah. in a, a in a new film that was showing at locarno and i'm trying to remember the name of the film now she will it's called by a uh, by a director called Claude okay I'm going to edit in me saying the All name right. correctly yeah. <laughs> uh yeah and it's 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 folk horror it's uh okay. yeah uh, mm. I, and I wanted to ask you about this actually um mm. sorry just like your book that question has has organically evolved <laughs> yeah <laughs> out of my control <laughs> beyond the limits of my own memory yeah no what I wanted to ask you is like this seems like a, a moment a really good 
good timing because there is a real revival of folk horror. There's been a documentary recently and there are films like Censor. Ben Wheatley's just uh, brought out a new film, this film that I saw in Locarno, which I'm sure will be out in autumn. She will. Is there a danger of sort of, of, of with this revival of, of something that, as you said, was in itself kind of revival or was about revival. Is there a danger that the there are, you know, that we're sort of getting diminishing returns or there's a spiral in or or how how, how do you feel about it, about this no, more recent? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't see it as diminishing returns at all. I mean, I, I'm actually really excited by the fact that, I mean, in a way, over the, over the period of writing this book, I mean, when I started, which was about 2011, it really felt like, okay, this is going to be a pretty archival, you know, retromania type uh, exploration of, you know, stuff from dusty boxes in the attic kind of thing of, in, in terms of film history and, uh, you know, which which was fine for me, but it, but it definitely kind of like somehow felt located in a certain time that and a period that was now gone. But over the period of writing it, what's been amazing is that there have been, as you say, you know, this, this kind of resurgence of certain filmmakers and, and certain productions for TV that, that you know, uh, seem to pick right up, you know, from, from all those threads that were left. Um, in, you, in, yeah, you mentioned Mark Gattis as well as uh, yeah, well, Mark I mean, Gattis yeah. and Inside Number 9. and Absolutely. I mean, th th those guys, you know, are clearly all, all over this stuff anyway. Um, and Mark made uh, that documentary um, called Home County's Horror, you know, which, which sort of like took the three, what, what's, what are often referred to as the unholy trinity of folk horror films um, as a starting point, which find a general blood on Satan's claw and, and the Wicker Man, you know, which, which is a reasonable starting point for talking about that. You know, and at the same time, you know, Ben Wheatley came out with Kill List and, and a couple of years later, Field in England, you know, which... And now his new film, which I ha actually haven't seen yet, In the Earth, you know, that, that just sounds like, you know, a kind of bingo card in a sense of, of, uh, of, of folk, you know, ideas about folk horror and things being buried underground com coming up to haunt us. Um, but at the same time... I guess that's yeah. what I meant by the cliche a little bit. I, I, I definitely, yeah, I love Kill List, Field in England. I think it's great. And in the earth, I just felt like exactly what you said, that it's like oh, this the bingo card of, I mean, it's stuff that I like, so I enjoyed yeah. it, but... I haven't seen the film, so I don't really right. feel equipped to comment any further than that. I don't want to sound glib about it. Um, sure, sure, fair but enough. I, but, um, but, you know, at the same time, I felt, you know, I, I in, in the book, I included a bit on the BBC series Detectorists, for example, which to me seemed to do a wonderful job in a in a sort of co gently comic format of exploring very similar ideas about our relationship to to history, lo local history, community, um, you know, to you know, trying to dig up things that are that are buried underground that have some resonance, you know, while at the same time being a you know a fantastic kind of uh, character, sort of you know kind of comedy as well. That to me sits right in there, and um, also you know you have a film like Bait by Mark Jenkin, you know set in Cornwall, looking at contemporary tensions between country and city, um, you know, what money is doing to the economy of very tiny localities, set in the present, shot on an ancient Bolex camera, you know, lots of sort of artificially enhanced grain, black and white, you know, it looks like a, a you know, a John Grierson documentary from the 30s, you know, so it's sort of like the film encapsulates this sort of sort of tension between the present and, and the past and, a, and, a, and, you know, and it's sort of, you know, so that, that again fitted right in and luckily that came out in time for me to 
include it in the book. And that, you know, he's got a new film in the works, I believe, as well, which I'm looking forward to seeing. So also a filmmaker, George Popov, you know, who, who, whose film The Droving I, I enjoyed very much. And, you know, so it feels like there is there are people out there with, you know, a sense, a similar kind of sensibility to the sort of themes that um, that I was exploring in in the Magic Box, and and I don't feel it's always just ticking off the, the relevant points. I think people are finding new and interesting ways to to interpret those ideas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe it's just our generation. Maybe it's just the generation who've been brought up on this kind of television and movies are now are now making their own movies, writing their own scripts, and so. Do you think nostalgia of this kind of this kind is is a sort of something quite specific to to Britain, you know. I, I I wonder if other countries have this similar sort of idea of I don't know. I mean, I think maybe what you talk about in the book as well about the industrial revolution sort of creating a division in how you live, so you're sort of you're taken away from the land. So there's always this sense that we really should get back to the land somehow, but that that might be dangerous as well. I don't, I don't know. Even even in Norway, do you feel there's this same same kind of nostalgia, same kind of? No, I mean that's what's interesting. I mean, you know, it's really hard to generalize about any nation, and it's particularly hard to generalize about Britain. I think you know because it's such a, so so many different things going on in in that society and it's an extremely diverse population but um the sort of feeling i mean you know norway is has a very different history it doesn't have any colonial history you know it was sort of a vassal state of of either denmark or sweden at various times until effectively about 100 years ago you know and so you know it had the chance to kind of design quite a modern constitution for itself uh, in the beginning of the 20th century and so the other thing is that its relationship to the landscape is totally different. You know, there was no aristocracy, so you don't have the same sort of physical setup of, you know, the manor house, the private land, the village, the church, the pub. You know, there's, it's not really set up like that. And, and also, you know, you have a massive sort of legal right to pretty much walk anywhere you know there's, there's very little private land in the sense that we know it in britain in britain i kind of very often feel if i'm walking around or driving around you know that you, you have the sense that most of what you're seeing you're not really allowed to to go into it <laughs> you know there's mm. gates there's keep out signs there's you know a lot of it is owned privately in norway the landscape doesn't have that it's open it's not you know lots of it is mountain and you know kind of open wilderness um which is all effectively for the people so what that means is that you at the same time you it doesn't come freighted with all the history that british landscape does you know you're not walking around and you see a plaque saying you know there was a battle fought here in 1649 you know or you know, there's not suddenly a museum here. I mean, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of legibility, like you, you're encouraged to read the British landscape a lot as you're going through it. You know, there's a lot mm. that's gone on, on those fields and on those paths and um, around those houses. In Norway, it's more like there's a sense of the, you could say like a sense of the sublime still around landscape because it's sort of still feels very untouched. A lot of it unfarmed, you know, it's um, it's wild. At the same time, because there's not much sort of like big tracts of privately owned land, you don't have that sort of sense of mystery that comes, you know, I, I think that's why perhaps we have so many sort of, you know, eerie, you know, at that strange sort of atmospheric films about the landscape is, is because, you know, a lot of the landscape is a mystery because you can't access it. So that that sets you off, you know, like what, what, what could be going on behind those walls? You know, what's, it's just... Um, so psychologically, it's a very different relationship to the landscape. 
Um, and I'm sure it's probably something different in Italy as well. I don't know, but um, but I think yeah, it's those. It's it's definitely. I mean, in terms of the nostalgia of Britain, I mean, you know, again, not without wanting to generalise, but I think that what what the British tend to do well as a kind of culture is preservation. I mean, yeah, there's there's flaws in the way our heritage is presented, but that's kind of starting to be addressed in, in certain circles, which is really interesting. But, you know, we, in terms of sort of presentation, you know, we do pageantry, we do heritage, we do, you know, museums, archives. What we're not perhaps so good at is imagining where we want to go and imagining concretely what the future of the country should be, uh, how that should look, you know, and I think that's, you know, that's that's for all sorts of reasons, short termism in government, um, just, you know, also perhaps, a, yeah, a, a sense that, you know, I think a lot of it is to do with legacies of the war, you know, kind of having sort of won, in inverted commas, the war, um, you know, there was less pressure to evolve and, and move forward and rebuild and, and rethink, you know, for the for the, for the sort of coming uh, years and so you know I think there's loads of factors feeding into this um, but you know I think what that adds up to is that and uh, you know I think we have seen that clearly in the last few years is we, we are sort of quite a nostalgic nation what's interesting is the way over time that nostalgia has been reclaimed you know on on all sides of the political spectrum and as you sort of implied earlier you know that can have dangerous consequences I think it can lead you down certain paths and I think it you know it can really you know nostalgia can really you know cause a kind of stagnation in a culture as well but you know the sort of paradox of being British and perhaps especially English you know is that it's it's so much part of um you know the way you're kind of conditioned to think that it's it's it is hard quite hard to imagine um you know fully what it would be to be to be to entirely free of that nostalgia and yeah. you know that, that kind of you know that kind of difficulty that I think you know I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure the British or or the English or whatever are ever going to be fully free of that to be honest I feel like it's a really it's it's so deeply ingrained and you know it's yeah it's it clearly at this point we've reached a point where it, you know it has really these kind of issues are really splitting the country and you know that's something else that I tried to touch on at some point in the book there's a section in there called the divided kingdom mm. uh, which is actually named in uh, in homage to a novel by rupert thompson that i like very much where he kind of imagines the nation sort of divided into four humors and sort of the population divided it's a really interesting kind of post orwellian novel um which i recommend but um yeah you know there's there's a lot of things out there that sort of express where where these different kind of you know, divisions uh, are coming from and films that have tried to show you know poverty and dilapidation and um, inequity so yeah. yeah i mean let's let's get let's go because uh, i um i we i could definitely talk to to you all day about this in the sense that uh, i think living abroad as an expat you become the resident em expert on your country as well <laughs> that is that people are always asking you oh what does britain think about this that or the other mm -hmm. and it's like so uh yeah so it's it's and i i totally understand the danger of generalization but heck it's fun as well let's face oh, it oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> to be the expert um let's talk a little bit about your sort of watching tv watching film career in terms of like when you were a kid you, you mentioned loads of these great children's programs which i off i often show you know my own kids when they were growing up i'll say yeah we've got to have a fine bagpuss on youtube and show them an episode and it's just so 
weird. And, and it wasn't just Bagpuss. It was Jamie and his Magic Torch and Drama Rama, the spooky mm. kids series. And there seemed to be a lot of sort of quite, well, you, you just bring up a lot of it. You bring a lot of it back, stuff that I haven't even thought about for years. A lot of sort of quite dark stuff. And then you have the, the same thing happening in novels with things like um, Susan Cooper and Alan Garner, which you, who you also mentioned. Even to some degree, Tolkien and, you know, Richard Adams, it's this sort of, it, it's not necessarily folk horror, but it's coming from the same loam. Absolutely. I mean, um, I mean, the one that I always remembered sort of after seeing it, and I remember kind of like, for example, as a student sort of saying to people, do, do you remember this series called The Changes, sort of kid, kids program? Uh, and, you know, no, nobody nobody remembered it it was really weird it was like i was the only one who'd ever seen it um was it on itv it was on oh. B- the bbc in 1975 oh. and it's this i, I just never forgot it and but, you know then kind of in the last sort of 10 years or so that well i mean it's been reissued now on a, on a dvd um by the bfi and it's it's kind of come that people are sort of <laughs> remembering it again also it had a wonderful bbc radiophonic workshop electronic soundtrack but you know that was that was something that just absolutely scared the pants off me just because it was it was sort of the first minutes so are just this kind of very sort of like enervated household parents and a daughter and then just suddenly there's this noise in the air and the parents just suddenly start smashing up every technological object in the house you know like the dad grabs a golf club and starts smashing the tv you know they they go outside and people are overturning buses and cars and you know it's just like sudden there's this sudden total kind of anarchy and it's all directed against technology and then the the whole country rejects it and goes back to a sort of pre-industrial way of life and and the story is about the the girl who goes wandering around the countryside and you know seeing what's going on and it's become a very superstitious society again it's sort of like there are kind of witch hunts going on and i mean you know it's absolutely terrifying stuff and it's um you know it's still pretty powerful today and you know that for me kind of again sort of sums up a lot of what, what we got exposed to as kids on tv it was there was a lot of apocalyptic stuff like that there was a lot of witchcraft and uh, you know, Children of the Stones is another one people often talk about. That was an ITV series that, again, kind of combined. I mean, it was filmed around the Avebury Stone Circle. It kind of combined a sort of pagan, evil cult um, with sort of a young kind of whiz kid who was sort of exploring the acoustic science of the stones with these sort of, you know, kind of oscilloscopes and things. And so, I mean, you know, you had these things that, um, suggested sort of dark cult forces and things. There's a se- kind of I don't know secret channels and under the surface of society, you know. Which I mean, you know, it was great to watch at the time. And I look back and it's just it's so different to what kids are shown now on on TV. It's just it's just fascinating, you know. And one thing that you know, one direction this book could have gone in was to try and I, I did sort of have an idea that I would try and track down you know, people who are behind the commissioning of these kinds of things and sort of, I mean, you know, they're not all around anymore. That's the trouble. And it's just logistically, that just proved to a step too far in terms of getting this book produced. So, you know, I ended up not, not it's not really an interview-based book. It is really a sort of personal journey through a lot of these films. But, uh, you know, it would have been interesting, you know, to sort of, but, you know, the, the machinations of the film and television industries, obviously, it's not, it's not always so easy to draw clear lines behind you know why things get done there are all sorts of 
um, incidental reasons why things turn out as they are. But it, it does point to an era where interesting material was allowed to get through and get made. Mm. You know, another one is the owl service, which I was too young to see at the time. You know, that was made in, you know, very end of the 60s, early 70s. You know, it's really sophisticated television. I mean, it doesn't feel like a children's series at all when you see it now. The dialogue is is pretty opaque um you know the the camera work is really interesting very sophisticated um kind of production design and then you know <laughs> the time you have, yeah on the other side you have the things you mentioned you know the, the small films type animations these very sort of folky craftsy things like bagpuss and finger bobs and so on you know which have this wonderful sort of folk music they they have amazing lovely grain in the in the footage uh, even you know I, remember, I mean even at the time they looked like that <laughs> you know it's not the sort of pattern of age you know they were shot in a way that you know suggests a kind of a age already you know which is very very sort of appealing and bagpuss is absolutely about the folk collecting process itself you know it is every episode is about an object that's found and they have to sort of like acid i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Obtain the origin of it through singing about it, telling stories around it. And, you know, in the process, they turn it into something new again. And that's exactly what folk folk does, you know, with, with a song or whatever or with a And Professor Yaffel is the sort of expert that Michael Gove the, says we've had enough of. Yeah, yeah. It? Well he's, I mean you, you sort of you, you do have enough of him in Bagpuss as well. So I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he's the kind of academic, you know, who, who wants to overthink things but actually manages to miss the point, you know, on almost every occasion, you know, which is quite 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 funny, quite amusing. But that's what that's one of the things that that, that really struck me about that reading your book was I, as soon as I read it, I went, oh yeah, and I I see that now. It's not like I grew up thinking, oh yeah, this is all of these things are connected in in this way. But but once you you uh, reading it in black and white in front of me, I just started thinking of loads of examples of of wacky, you know, blimey, there was a hell of a lot of science fiction and fantasy in in children's in children's TV. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm very, I'm very grateful for that. You know, also a lot of children's books at the time as well. You know, I mean, I'm, you know, I love things like the Tripods trilogy, John Christopher. And, you know, I did, I mean, I remember reading John Wyndham books and short stories and things, you know, at a fairly early age, um, mm. you know, and these, yeah, these, these were very much there. But I mean, of course, the other thing is that, you know, there was a lot more, you know, the television was also a kind of a really good repertory cinema. You know, mm, in the 70s mm. and 80s i mean in a way that it isn't you know terrestrial tv now doesn't really show movies to the same curated extent but i mean it was you know you could really there were tons of you know like sci-fi movies from the 50s and 60s being shown you know there were you know there were you know, sort of you know 
French art movies, you know, I mean, you know, like loads of horror hammer movies on Friday nights. I mean, it was, that's why I don't feel, I mean, I know some people are probably not happy about the idea of a book that sort of just treats film and television as a continuum. You know, that is kind of heretical, I know, to some. Two idiots, two idiots, Rob. It's heretical to idiots. (laughs) (laughs) They're not often discussed perhaps in the sort of kind of like fluid way that I chose to do. but, you know, the fact is that I saw a lot of the movies I saw, I saw on television for the first time. And I, you know, I don't really, it's not that important to me whether something is a TV programme or a, or, a, or a film, you know. My, my, my formal yeah. film education was movie drawn by Alex Cox and, yeah, right, uh, yeah. you know, and uh, the, BBC the Two, Channel 4. Channel 4, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. BBC yeah. Two, Sunday, Saturday, Sunday afternoon, double bills, you know, where they put a Spencer Tracy double bill or a, or a film noir or whatever. Exactly. And there was also a lot of discourse about film on TV. I mean, maybe not a lot, but, uh, you know, I remember these fantastic film essays by, it was Lindsay Anderson did did. One, I think in the in the eighties for Channel Four there were these kind of film these I think Alan Clark did one as well you know just sort of essay documentaries by by great filmmakers you know and it was, it was just I mean there was more discussion of the arts on TV as well than than there is now in, in a more kind of in a less sort of apologetic way um, yeah yeah and for me that was very inspiring and very illuminating. I remember there was a children's program. I brought it up in a previous podcast called something. I think it was called Clapperboard, and it was sort of like mm. it would go go on to the set of For Your Eyes Only or something, you know. And right, and, how, and, of course, and it yeah. was purely for kids. It wasn't. It was like a, a kids' version of the Barry Norman show, really. Mm. And you had screen test as well, you know, a, a kids' quiz about film as well. You know, so yeah. there were yeah. lots of ways to sort of you know to be be exposed to the world of film then, uh, and uh, which is which is great. You know. yeah. Let's let's fluidly slip over to cinema for for a little while because you mentioned earlier on the trilogy of of English or British folklore because of course Wickerman is is filmed in Scotland. Mm. The biggest compliment I think I could make this book, well actually it's not, but it's a it is a good compliment for any film book, is that after reading it all day yesterday last night I sat down and I did a double bill of the Wickerman and the Draftsman's Contract because I oh, wanted wow. to I wanted to watch two sort of. You know, both of which I'd already seen, but both of which I'd probably last seen probably the early 90s, you know, a long time ago. The, first of all, your description of The Wicker Man as a musical, which I scoffed at when I read it. I'm like, that's, that's nonsense. And then I watched it and went, bloody hell, they never stop singing in this film. They sing all the way through it. It's a musical. You know, it's, you know, chapeau. Uh, well, well, good. I'm glad I convinced you. <laughs> I was hoping. I mean, it was it was a little tongue in cheek um, writing that. I don't know. Maybe it didn't, didn't entirely come across. But I mean, you know, it is true. There are a lot of songs in it. You know, and a, a lot of the key moments in the film, uh, in in the story, are enacted through song you know, or music. Yeah. So, you know, no, no, absolutely. How do you define yeah. a musical? <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, Britt Eklund when she... West End adaptation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Britt Eklund actually sort of sings to camera. It's not yeah. like even that. There's just a song happening. She sings. She addresses the camera as in, in yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a pop video. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. yeah. And she manages to be three different people during that sequence as well, which I'm sure anybody who's seen the film will remember. I won't need to describe it. Because Annie Ross, I think, is doing her voice and Britt Eklund is there. And and every time she turns her back to the camera, oh, you get a full length shot. It's a, a body double. They had a body double, yeah, exactly. With yeah. very mm. obviously different length hair as well. Yeah. Her hair sort of shortens. <laughs> you but, have uh, the finger on the freeze frame, yeah. 
<laughs> no, I'm just extremely well trained as a film critic to pick up on this stuff. I probably film freeze framed it so much when I was when it was a VHS that yeah. um, still burned into my memory. But that, I mean, God Almighty, that film is magnificent. It's a genuinely disturbing film but it's also genuinely funny and it sort of genuinely has something to say as well it does it does it does stand up i mean i was the first time i watched it i watched it not really knowing i didn't hadn't really read around it it was i mean it's quite a long time ago now you know i just had heard people talking about it and i just watched it not knowing where it was going to go at all which is a great way to watch that film no i mean yeah and i've watched it many times since now and it is it's it's uh you know, just visually, it's an extraordinary film, unsettling sort of atmosphere and, and climate. Um, obviously, it was famously, you know, set in midsummer, but filmed in the autumn. So, you know, it just has shadows are longer than they should be. The late, you know, the golden time just doesn't look like summer golden time. Somehow it's sort of, and, you know, it's this kind of, for me, it's, although it's made and set in Scotland, you know, it seems to me it is kind of like a sort of pageant of Brit British, pan-British folk costumes and traditions and superstitions and it sort of just piles them all many of them you know into this film so which I, you know which i think is one of those things that just you know makes it still sort of broadly appealing and, and somehow you know takes it away from and you kind of forget that you're in scotland i think to a certain extent it is in it is sort of a world out of out of time and that's that's the world that the islanders want to create obviously as well they, they are creating a pagan society on a private island you know obviously you know you 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 don't want they they want to shut the rest of the world out they want to make a new world on this island so you know and yeah all all these ideas i think are, are that idea of a social experiment like that kind of starting again is sort of a one that's appealed to a lot of uh, writers and people yeah what I think as well seems specifically English about that, about, about this sort of experiment or the nature of it is that it, it doesn't have like uh, the, the other sort of the, the sort of first stop for most people when you're thinking about cults is something like the Manson family. And it, it's cult based on youth and based on experimentation and based on breaking a load of, you know, load of social boundaries and all the rest of it. But with these English versions and British versions, also because you've got a very colonial aspect of it, of the Lord coming in and actually just imposing this as a, as a new way of doing things. It reminded me of another point in the book where you talk about you know, every suburban home having a Des Dennis Wheatley novel and and the guy who wrote Witchcraft being a like member of the local Conservative Party and sort of drinking tea and reading the Telegraph and what mm. have you. That this, that this is not necessarily a radical sort of, not that Manson was by any means left-wing or, mm. or, or, or progressive i mean he was a he was a complete racist and um, neo-nazi but but you have this sort of conservative idea of a cult you know it, it does that is that how how it how it feels to you as well or? yeah i mean it's yeah again it's you know a lot of a lot of our conservative if you're talking small c conservatism exactly, there's, yes. there's, a, there's often a real gray area between what is conservative and what is radical you know that's the thing it's like you know a lot of the the levelers after the civil war sort of they were the rebels against the old order but they actually wanted to go back to a kind of you know the most extreme wanted to go back to a sort of garden of eden <laughs> and sort of mm. start right again you know which you could say is the ultimate form of conservatism so you know these it's not a sort of clear to me it's not it's not always clear cut you know what i think the wicker man does so brilliantly with it is that they start off in the cockpit of sergeant howie the the policeman who you kind of assume is going to be he's the hero the lawman coming to 
sort everything out, but it's just the way the film breaks breaks him down, you know, and actually kind of makes you dislike this person really, um, you know, because of his kind of sort of, uh, you know, his kind of religiousness and he's kind of like a prig, and, isn't he? It's a bit yeah, 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 and piousness and and the way I mean, I'm not sure if you get to like the pagan community, but it, it it shows there's a logical reason for them behind everything they do and everything they believe and all the rituals they perform, which are clearly laid out during the film. And that's what's so effective about it. And there's this other fantastic detail in the movie where literally the first frame, you remember the, what the first frame of the movie is? Like literally the first thing you see. It's easy to forget because of the mm, Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's an intertitle that says something like, the, the, the makers of this film would like to thank the inhabitants of Summer Isle for their cooperation. Yes, yeah, yes, Summer Isle is a fictional island, you know? So it's like, it's, <laughs> it's kind of like right from the beginning, the film is saying kind of we've been, you know, we're on the sort of, you know, community side, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. I don't know if it was there in the original script or if it came in afterwards, but it is, a, it, it completely... So I didn't really notice it the first time I saw it, but the the, the sort of the subsequent viewings, I kind of just picked up on that. And I thought they're like sort of yeah. anthropologists going yeah, into this thing. And exactly. thanks very much for welcoming and, us. And we and respect your point of view. We yeah. don't necessarily agree with it, but we're not going to impose our it's view on it. Sort you. of legitimacy in a way to to what's going on on that island. In a, in a really sort of like just it's just sort of thrown in there, but it's fascinating, you know. So it's it, you know it really leaves you. I think the, the the strength of the film is that there's no clear good guys and bad guys. You know, there's certain things about how he, you know, obviously you sh nobody should go around burning people in a giant, you know, <laughs> effigy. <laughs> but there's things about Howie that are unappealing and, and authoritarian and uh, dictatorial. And there are things about the pagan way of life that are really appealing. You know, they're in touch with nature. They're in touch with the natural crop cycles. And um, they're incredibly musical. They're very beautifully musical in a, in a folk rock kind of way. Uh, you know, they're comfortable with their sexuality. They like a drink, you know. <laughs> so, they they you like know, having a good time. Yeah. yeah the yeah, landlord's yeah. daughter. Look and... too bad, apart from the, the ritualistic sacrifice. <laughs> apart uh, from the occasional I'd, murder. I'd, you know, I'm t I'd be tempted to sign up you know, if it wasn't for that. Yeah, I mean, well, the film really sort of ends on a, and, you know, so obviously if you don't want to spoil Wicker Man, then, then go away and, and watch it immediately. But the ending is, is just sets up a dialectic that it doesn't resolve. You know, he's, he's shouting his Christian prayers and they're singing their pagan songs and it's kind of, okay, take your choice. You know, it's, it's, it's yeah. up to you. Who do you it, want to be with? It kind of leaves on a literally dissonant ending you know which is so amazing it's those two musics just clashing against each other two musics two two ways of seeing the world you know that just never mesh in any way mm. they never harmonize and mm. you know that's part of this sort of divided kingdom idea for me is that you know there are there are perhaps fault lines that that are never quite possible to to patch up or fill in you know and that's I think that's, that's why that film is is still you know, very, very appealing or, you know, or, or you know, still really resonates. Um, there's there's mm. still lots, lots to pick out of that film. Yeah. And adults wearing ma animal masks is just, you know, it's always, free, I mean, it's become beyond thing, belief. Yeah? And, you know, you see that cropping up in, I mean, you know, Kill List has that, um, you know, it's become, it, it's become a sort of folk horror, one of those bingo card things, perhaps with folk horror, you know, but mm. th there is, there is still something, creepy and eerie about about the sight of that on, on film it's uh, it, you know it works yeah 
and because there's no explanation for it, especially in the Wicker Man, you just suddenly see these people on the quayside in masks. You've never seen that before. You don't know why, who they are or why they're doing it. It's just brilliantly done. It's just sort of just cuts to that suddenly and it just throws the film into another gear. There's also the aspect that this is not, you could argue that it's supernatural if you if the pagans are right. And if the pagans aren't right, then in the words of, you know, Jesse Plemons in The Master, you know, he's just making this shit as he goes along. <laughs> you know, he's making yeah. it up. It's not, it's all, it's all invented. Yeah, well, I mean, there isn't anything supernatural in The Wicker Man. That's, that's also what's so, so great. I mean, you know, as in Witchfinder General, you know, one of those other key folk horror films, you know, there's nothing, there's no magic happening. You know, it is, and I, I mean, there's actually, I think there's a line of dialogue in The Wicker Man where there's a bit of backstory from Christopher Lee about, and I think I think he says, you know, that his father had set up a community there and so on, and he's he's just sort of perpetuating it. You know, but there is a sense that, you know, if the crops fail again, the next one to go might be the Lord himself, which is the sort of natural consequence. So, so you know, there is a sense that he needs he needs a sacrifice in some way, and you know, mm. but n- none of that has anything to do with witchcraft or there's no unexplainable acts happening in that film. Um, yeah, and I mean, the, ch- yeah. the chances are that the, the crop will work next year because you know just be returned to the mean you know you had a bad harvest and exactly yeah 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 it'll be red in like that so moving from the wicker man and i watched the draftsman's contract which i think peter greenaway is is one of those filmmakers that if he had died in 1993 would be considered one of our best filmmakers of 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 those that decade but um, yeah not unfortunately for him obviously but um the fact that he sort of hung around and sort of did lots of obscure projects and and every single interview he's done since 1993 he's talked about the death of cinema which is not endearing mm. uh, doesn't endear him to me at least but the draftsman's contract is such an amazing movie and it's and it, i i was again provoked by provoked inspired by your book i was seeing loads of connections fruit for instance <laughs> yeah. comes up in both you know summer isle they're growing apples in a, a place where they shouldn't grow apples and in Drasman's contract that he's constantly eating from the garden. He's constantly eating these exotic, mm. non-English fruits. He, uh, the final scene, he is, he is given a pineapple. In fact, the very final shot, if we're going to get down to details, is the statue you've seen wandering around through the entire film, trying the pineapple and spitting mm. it at the camera. So oh, it's yeah. a real uh, yeah. sort of breaking of the frame of like, yeah. Um, okay, yeah, he, maybe he's an old spirit of England or something or a sort of a green man, isn't he? Sort of a, in some way, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I love his role as well, that you think it's sort of a metafictional thing that the cinema is just doing. But then, um, and the Mr. Neville, the draftsman, actually says and, and who's that prat pretending to be a, you know <laughs> pretending to be a statue yeah you know just like yeah there's a lot of humor in peter greenaway isn't there there's a lot of yeah kind of cool, funny quite throwaway lines across yeah. a lot of his films i i really loved i mean i remember seeing drowning by numbers when it came out that was one of my sort of first sort of when i discovered the art cinema uh, in bristol that was one of the first ones that was that i saw there i thought that was brilliant and that actually also opens one of the early shots is sort of a wonderful autumnal pile of uh, apples i think it's just almost like a kind of Cezanne painting or something. That's sort of still life. Yeah, there's a sort of almost still sort of Dutch still life uh, kind of uh, aspect to it. But uh, yeah, no, the Jarsmith's contract's great, isn't it? I hadn't seen it for a very long time until I watched it sort of for the book again. And uh, yeah, it's sort of struck by the, yeah, the kind of, viv- you know, the vividness of the design and the sort of, I mean, I was really in- intrigued by, you know, there's a recurring image of the draftsman's frame, isn't there? The sort of, which just 
to me that that just became a television screen you know, as well. mm. <laughs> um yeah or a, you know or the lens or a lens you know that he's l looking through you know it's, i'm sure it's a, somehow a reference to also the act of, of filmmaking as well as as well as making images oh absolutely because um, he becomes yeah. a director doesn't he you know yeah, i don't want anyone yeah. in front of the house from no coal is to be burned in the fireplaces so there's no smoke and yeah and and, 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 and yeah yeah <laughs> move the ladder out of the way and then he uses his position of power to to get uh you know to uh, exploit and abuse sexually uh you know uh, an otherwise powerful woman as mm. like it's harvey weinstein it's, uh... <laughs> but it's also i mean i included that film in my chapter about the the country house because it seemed to me a sort of interesting take on the on the sort of country house movie which very often and again this is not a pattern i'd necessarily noticed until i put a lot of them together you know but it's very often about an outsider to the world of the aristocratic country house coming into that milieu in some way and either disrupting it or kind of maybe joining it for a while and then sort of being spat out you know again uh, you know destroyed by it or, or or forever altered by it not necessarily in a, in a good way and this you know this is another example in but in, in a very in a very Peter Greenaway sense of, you know, it's the same, it's, it, there is that pattern there, the artist, the, the journeyman artist arriving in this pretty obnoxious uh, household and trying to sort of take control over it, like you say, but ultimately being being destroyed by it. And, you know, it's, it's a really interesting re, re, rethink of that, of that kind of pattern. I do think that even that period and I think you 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 make the point similarly. The period of the early '80s and that sort of Thatcherite sort of heritage Britain. And I remember Alan Parker talking about the Merchant Ivory films as being the Laura Ashley of cinema. I always think those Merchant Ivory films were far more subversive and interesting than they frequently got credit for. And and Remains of the Day is obviously very explicit in that. But I think Room of a View and they're remembered as these sort of prestige, beautiful pieces of work which they are but they were never celebratory they were never um no i think maybe maybe because of time timing i think they've sort of maybe seen under the same light as a film like chariots of fire or something mm. you know, perhaps um which is which is perhaps more kind of patriotic uh, in a sort of um, unapologetic way but no you're right i mean i think it's interesting they often came back to em forster you know who was someone also who who's who kind of saw he was very interested in in sort of like movement between you know, class barriers and so on and and often, like you know Howard's End for example is about somebody who wants sort of to better himself and, and ends up destroyed by that as well and yeah so yes I mean I think I think because of their kind of surface lushness I think perhaps it's it's easier to dismiss them but yeah, I don't know. I think the sort of subject matter they were choosing was was more more interesting than that, and it kind of more poignant because it's because they're filmed in that way, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like a film like Morris coming out. I think I think there is a little. I don't think I'm alone in this. I think there's quite a few people reassessing now and 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 saying actually, there's a lot more to these films than than maybe maybe has has been they've been credited for. Hmm. So so yeah, and then we get Downton Abbey. I mean, it's interesting mm -hmm. as well. You said something earlier on about how a relationship to landscape being a, one that that is affected by the privatization of land and the, and the refusal of access, so that it becomes mysterious. Also, this idea that you you were talking about in terms of Downton Abbey projecting this sort of real image of of that's what England England is is these country houses, and and that's 
the sort of heritage industry has created. But of course, like for 90%, 99% of the people who live in England, their experience of a country house is that of a tourist. They're not, you know, nobody's working there anymore. Nobody's living there anymore. So it's, it again becomes just this imaginary space. Totally. And I mean, you know, Downton Abbey for me is not a series I particularly enjoy. And um, it just feels aimed more at an American viewership anyway, to a certain extent. There were lots of things in the script and so on that sort of lots of Americanisms in, in the script. And it's just a, it's just a picture of of a kind of country house setup that doesn't doesn't ring true for me at all you know it's just it's just like the most liberal aristocratic household ever you know <laughs> <laughs> wonderful lasting friendships between the servants and the and the masters you know and sort of um oh yeah you know the ira supporting chauffeur yeah marry my daughter fine <laughs> why not <laughs> Stop being such an old... in the 1920s i mean it's just sort of yeah it, it, there was a certain level of I don't know. I felt like it was a really missed opportunity in a way to sort of, um, I just, it just doesn't, doesn't feel, I mean, I, I, I find uh, Brideshead Revisited TV, the, the Granada series there, for example, where the, the, the staff in the house are almost, they're pretty much anonymous. I think they almost never have any lines and all this kind of deep, difficult family business is conducted with them sort of standing around silently uh, I find that really powerful. I mean, of course, you know, you could say, well, it would be fascinating to actually go behind the scenes there and find out what, what the staff was saying. But actually, it kind of leaves it to your imagination, which is mm. really powerful. You think, my God, these are like the employees are standing around while this family is just being absolutely ghastly in lots of ways and tearing each other mm. apart and it's it's i mean you can't help but sort of you know put yourself in the position of, of one of one of those one of the staff in a way you know you are in a sense be, being a viewer and that that to me says more about uh, the, the anonymity it says more to me in a way about about that, that kind of divide than than downton abbey i actually feel it was sort of it, it didn't work the, the attempt to show the upstairs and downstairs worlds because they they were way too chummy. <laughs> yeah, there was there wasn't enough conflict. It wasn't enough. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah and, anything dramatic that happens to the, the housekeeper, he's going to be out. You know, they, they're not going to want the scandal. You know, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's just uh, it's just, yeah, it's really bizarre. But you know, it's not a it's it's not real. It's a it's a twenty first century aristocratic house <laughs> it's like mcdonald's um when they designed their their big mac they actually hired a firm of um baby food designers because they wanted the the one of the criteria was that you've you've got to be able to swallow it after three bites after three chews you know <laughs> yeah, yeah and i, th I think yeah. downton abbey has that similar thing and hey you know every now and again i'll go to mackie d's so every now and again i'll watch sometimes you something. need that sometimes you yeah. need a quick hit yeah until yeah. sybil dies when sybil's dead i'm not interested anymore <laughs> i just i'd lose interest weirdly i don't know what it was but so suddenly it, it didn't feel as much one of the things that i can't we can't finish without talking about uh one of the sort of heroes of of the book i, I think i think is nigel neal he he sort of runs through at least the first half of the book he he's, he comes up again and again and again what what an amazing contribution and why don't we really what why don't we know more about that why isn't that more why isn't he more credited as a more figure credited. yeah no i agree it's it's extraordinary i mean i really make no apologies in 
thinking that I mean I would put in kind of in in sort of post-war culture along with Orwell, Ballard, uh, Aldous Huxley. I kind of right sort of it's because it's in that sort of world that he he is working in terms of thought. You know, he's sort of trying to find new kind of language to express what the ways the world has changed after the apocalypse of the Second World War and and the dangers of where society is heading and you know yeah he's a science fiction writer he's also you know he did a look quite a lot of just more straight literary adaptations for film and television as well did the the film of look back in anger for example which is sort of quite a surprising yep. thing you know he did this amazing 1954 tv production of 1984 with peter cushing which is an amazing piece um yeah i have not seen that and that's it's really great it's a, it's a fabulous one cushing is amazing in it and it's just really very sort of dark and noirish and the, the music is sort of deeply sort of a deep grind and i think you know nigel neal who was a, a scriptwriter who started working for the BBC in the 50s and kind of got a break when uh, there was a gap in the schedules in 1953 and he, he had to sort of come up with a with a series and came up with the first of the Quatermass series which I definitely see as a precursor to Doctor Who in a sense in that kind of featured a main a sort of main character who was sort of scientist come hero you know the Quatermass franchise has become quite celebrated but not super well known I would say I mean you know nothing like Doctor Who but really, really interesting there they got made four, four TV series and three uh, movies you know Hammer did did their own versions of them and Quatermass and the Pit has a what's the word has a, a good good shout out to be one of the one of the best sort of British made science yeah, fiction films definitely, ever, I think. definitely so. yeah and you know again you know it's about it's a science fiction film but it's about something being dug up from, from underground it's about a spaceship you know that from five thousand years ago that, that yeah. crashed under under what is now london and the digging up of it provokes all sorts of uh, horror and um kind of buried kind of activistic memories and so it, yeah it sort of it contains a lot of those those ideas as well but uh, yeah he seemed to and again you know nigel neal was one of those contradictory figures where he was uh, trying to think of a new you know he was he was imagining futures i mean the tv play the year of the sex olympics you know i also think it's one of the great uh, tv productions ever it's a sort of futuristic world governed by mass entertainment um where the kind of population is sort of kept pacified and you know he imagined it's it's filmed in the late 60s it's filmed in a very sort of gl glossy glittery sort of production which is really great great late 60s evocation of, of the future you know but at the same time he kind of had this conservative as well you know because he was dismayed at the effects of mass entertainment even though that's where he made his career you know he, he he was warning a lot of his things are warnings about what what mass entertainment can do to a sort of to a population psyche and uh he was intrigued by the dangers of the, the things that lie buried you know sort of li literally and, and metaphorically and the stone tape which you mentioned earlier on you know mm -hmm. another again another total landmark in British TV. And, you know, in, in an interesting way, I found one of the hardest ones to place in the map of the book. It kind of fits in a lot of different places, potentially. You know, there's something that, that both deals with uh, memories kind of recorded into stone, but also about the use of high technology to extract those memories and kind of the way that interacts with sort of repressed memories in the human mind as well. I mean, it's very sophisticated thinking for, for television. And, you know, he, he sort of managed to write wonderful screenplays that, that were not in any way 
weighed them down, you know, but but still kind of, you know, there, it was great storytelling. Again, and also worked, I mean, he wasn't just a science fiction writer as well. He did a lot of stuff set in the, the real world as well. But I mean, the, um, the the big sort of loss in a way is this, this script called The Road, which was a play broadcast in 1963, but it seems to have been white, which sounds fascinating, which is a sort of apocalyptic time travel thing where there's, I think it's like 17th century uh, travelers in a coach who hear these terrible screams in the forest uh, around them and it turns out that it's they're hearing the, the future screams of people dying in a nuclear attack <laughs> you oh know and that's 1963 you know that 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 is quite a sort of amazing thing to imagine on television at that time i think oh you just that's want the bfi to put that script together with a sort of a young director who, who... It should totally i then weekly come on down you know yeah 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 you know it maybe is time to to make that properly i mean it's a it's a, it's a great you know it's a great idea and you know i think nigel neal was really good at sort of reimagining rethinking things you know the normal sort of time travel thing is that you hear echoes from the past and his thing was to yeah he, he was imagining people in the past hearing echoes from the future that that is a Again, you know, for the time he was writing, that was a really, a really novel idea, I think. Yeah. I would encourage anybody to read this book, even if you're not my age, even if you're, because it will, it will lead you to like a, a cave full of buried treasure that look, fortunately is, as you say, except for the road, is mostly available. So before we finish though, Rob, could I ask you for a recommendation for a film book that you've read and you, and you, you you want to recommend our listeners to to find yeah it's tricky it's tricky i mean sort of you know i i, I referred to a lot of books in the writing of this book and you know there's a lot of film you know, books on film and television that are kind of really useful but not necessarily kind of great pieces of writing or literature you know so sort of definitely there's space in in writing on film for more you know i don't know for, i mean more sort of imaginative approaches potentially but i mean i probably i think the one that probably sticks out. I mean, in terms of the books around this sort of magic box project, I'd probably say uh, Michael Powell's memoirs, A Life in Movies and, and, and Million Dollar Movie, um, just because they're sort of, I mean, it's just, I don't know if you've read any of those. I mean, they're enormous. There's two volumes, <laughs> absolutely gigantic books. And he really, but he's sort of got a phenomenal recall and gives you an amazing picture of the Film industry, you know, pre pre Second World War, not really pulling any punches in terms of certain personalities. Amazing descriptions of how practically effects were achieved on on most of the Powell and Pressburger movies. Lots of sort of strong, very partisan opinions about all sorts of things. Interesting character portraits of people, and and very frank about his own relationships. So, I mean. The story he tells is such a long arc, and the, the book sort of starts with him sitting on a transatlantic flight in in the present he was writing, which I think was the mid eighties, eighty six or eighty seven, as an old man, you know. And he literally says, "I'm I'm sitting on this plane, you know, like write, writing the, these pages, sort of thing, you know." And then it sort of is, so it really puts you very much in his here and now, and then it's just like this incredible panorama of a life, literally, as I said, you know, a life in in movies that, that unfolds after it and it's you know it's at the same time a very singular view being michael powell who whose own relationship to the industry became increasingly you know and you know quite quite his own path in a way he went down and and mm. but but i think probably just in terms of the sort of vividness of it i think it was it was a great read and really you know a really uh, amazing work of recall oh well you've so, sold me i i yeah. i mean i know Paul and Pressburger movies and uh you know I'm 
big fan, obviously. I've got the big box set that I, I worked mm. my way through uh, a few years ago. So yeah, I don't know why I've never actually uh, come across those. Or, or I mean, I think I've known about them, but I've, I've never sought them out. Yeah, well, so, they're pretty so. daunting in, in size, you know, and they do, you know, yeah, they, they, they do ramble at times, you know, I'm not saying. Yeah. I've, I've read Finnegan's Wake. Nothing, nothing. Nothing holds any fear for me anymore. <laughs> Listen, Rob, thank you so much for uh, joining us on Writers uh, on Film. And uh, yeah, well, thank you very much. Best, best of luck with the book. Thanks a lot, John. It's been great talking to you. Well, that was my conversation with Rob. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. His recommended book was Michael Powell's A Life in Pictures. And uh, it just... The only thing I need to do now is... What do I need to do? The only thing I need to do now is thank Elliot Atkins for the music, Ali Harwood for the art. And uh, until next week, please take care. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.